The following for the city sermon is from our sermon series by Pastor Scott Rising entitled Feast for Failures from the book of Luke. We hope you enjoy it. Hey, so we're going to continue going through the gospel of Luke this morning. We're actually going to be finishing up the first section of Luke, uh, which primarily deals with Jesus's birth. Okay. Uh, we, if you remember last week, we left off with the family returning to Nazareth, right? Uh, to Galilee. You see that in verse 39 of chapter two in Luke. And, and this is after presenting baby Jesus in the temple, right? Well, this morning, we'll see that, that the family's returning, and it's 12 years has passed, right? Well, what happened in those 12 years? Let your imagination run wild. Just don't make any strange teachings out of it, right? Um, but what we see here, described in verse 40, right, which is where we're picking it up, is Jesus is now a young boy. He's 12, right? So if you can remember what it was like to be 12, or if you know any 12-year-olds, you can think about that. Next week, when we start chapter 3, you're going to see that another 18 years has passed, approximately, right? And, and Jesus is now a man, and he's going to begin his, his ministry, right? But today, we get this little snapshot at the end of chapter 2, before jumping into chapter 3, and um, it's, it's interesting, right? Luke's gospel is fascinating for so many reasons, right? Uh, the fact that he includes this story... I think is just fascinating and just shows the uniqueness of his account, right? And, and what do I mean by that? Well, first off, if you're familiar with the other Gospels, there's no mention of the three wise men. By the way, we don't know that there was three. They were Magi. There could have been more. It just says they brought three things. Could have been two, could have been 20, right? But there's no mention of that. No wise guys in this one. There's no flight to Egypt, right? And if you're not familiar with that, read Matthew. There's no government slaughter of the innocent babies in Bethlehem. If you're like, what's that about? Read Matthew. He doesn't mention any of that. But then he does give us this little text that I find, and I'll tell you, at the beginning of the week, I found a little perplexing, like, what am I going to do with this? Lord, help me. Um, what do we learn here? Well, that's what we're going to seek to, to see in the scriptures this morning. And um, why does he add it? This is a good question to ask. It's a really good question to ask when you come to the scriptures. Why is this here? Because there's no waste away writing in any of the gospels, right? So it'd be easy just to skip this text and be like, ah, oh, Jesus, you know, he wandered from his parents and he went to the temple. And, but let's get to the action. That starts in chapter three. You'd be missing something pretty beautiful uh, if you did that. So let's see what that might be. Let's read the text once again and let's see what we can learn. This is not, by the way, an insignificant story. Luke has added it with, with some real reasons. So let's see what that is. Now, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. Pause. Um, worship was central to this family's life. I think it's real important that you see that. That required sacrifice. It's about a 70-mile trek, right? And they, they didn't have an Uber driver. They had to pack it up. They, they went with other people. You'll see that in just a moment. They would miss work. They're there for a week. It's probably a couple of days journey in, a couple of days back. You know, Joseph's a carpenter. So he had to set aside work to be able to do the thing that was most important, right? And he does that. And then it says, and when he was 12 years old, he being Jesus, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. 
But then they began to search for him among the relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. Hit pause. <laughs> this is kind of interesting, right? Um, it says the group. By the way, don't, don't miss this. It wasn't like it was just Mary, Joseph, and 12-year-old Jesus. And they're like, oh my, we forgot him. They traveled in, in a big pack, right? They did that for a couple reasons. Number one, probably safety. Uh, but also, they would ascend to Jerusalem. And what that means is as they would go to the temple, they are preparing their hearts for worship. They are worshiping. They're going through the book of Psalms, primarily particular songs of ascent. And so you could just imagine this bandwagon of people and they're traveling to Jerusalem to worship God and to remember the Passover, to remember his promises. But they're just not, you know, ho-humming along. They are engaged in worship. Right? So you had children, you had, generally you had the children up front, that's what they would say, women in the middle, men towards the back to make sure that they could see everything in front of them and protect them from behind as they would work towards Jerusalem. They were ascending to the holy city. But notice, Jesus was left behind, <laughs> right? Like, don't, don't miss this. You think, how could that ever happen? When you're traveling with a big pack, it could happen pretty easily. It takes a community to raise children, and they were trusting in that community, and uh-oh, we lost Jesus. Um, so, notice this. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. By the way, mom gives Jesus, the 12-year-old, a little gentle rebuke. Um, assuming that he had done something wrong. A uh, little side note, parenting takes a lot of patience and understanding. <laughs> right? <laughs> to understand the difference between willful disobedience and a child just being a kid right? Uh, it, takes, it takes a lot of patience. It takes a lot of grace to figure that out. It takes, Mary needs grace to raise a perfect son. So how much grace do you think it takes to raise sinful children, sinful you know, adolescents, teens? Answer, a ton, a ton. Look what he says to her. Why were you looking for me? <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> Why were you, you know, did you not know that I must be in my father's house. And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and with man. That's what we're working with today. And you gotta think, that's awkward, right? You, you may have heard of the movie series Left Behind right? Some of you may have had your end time thinking very much in, you know, informed by that. Uh, well, that is a book or a movie series that butchers the Bible. Um, this really is the left behind story, right? This is the real left behind story. Joseph and Mary left Jesus behind in the temple and they're returning home from Passover. They're a day into their journey and they're like, have you seen Jesus? No. Go ask Susie. Susie, have you seen Jesus? No. Has anybody seen Jesus? No. Oh, this ain't good. So they're a day out, 
Now you got to travel a day back, and then on the third day, it appears as though they find him. And where's he at? He's just hanging. He's just hanging with some scholars, right? They're just cutting it up. They're just mixing up. They're, he's asking questions. He's answering questions. And notice, he's the center of attention. Everyone's amazed at this young man. They're like, they're astonished by what he's saying. And, and, and Mary's like, whoa, what's going on here? And so she asks, why are you here, right? The question is, once again, though, why, why did Luke include this in this account? That is the question. Uh, maybe it's to encourage parents, right? You know, it takes a lot of grace to, to raise perfect children, so it's going to take a lot of grace to raise imperfect children. I don't think so. I don't think so. You could draw that conclusion, but that's not the point. Was it to show that Joseph and Mary were negligent parents? I don't think so. How about that Jesus was a disobedient boy? Nope, I don't think so either. But let's take both of those just for a moment because I want to be able, and we're going to get into a little bit of teaching here. And you're like, well, isn't that what we do every time? Preaching and teaching is a little bit different. So this might seem a little academic to you. That's okay. We'll get right back to preaching. But I think it's important to do this. So like all parents, Joseph and Mary are not perfect. But they're doing the best they can. So let's, let's tackle the first one. Was Joseph and Mary, were they negligent? I don't think so. They were not perfect, but they're doing the best they can, right? We have no reason to draw the conclusion that they were negligent. They don't need CYS called on them. They do not need some version of a government society to make sure that they could hover over them and watch over them to make sure that they're doing all the things right. They thought Jesus was with this large group. And that he'd made the journey back with them from Jerusalem. Why it's so important to understand, it's not like going to Walmart. Like Jesse and I going to Walmart, and Sarah's a 12-year-old girl. We get in the car, and we just don't even realize she's with us, and we go home, and we're like, uh-oh. Now, by the way, if you're a parent and you've done that, there's grace for that too, because I heard a story about Jake Weisel being left at church and then having to go over to the pastor's house to spend the afternoon. My guess, it was probably pretty strategic knowing Ray and Deb. They're like, we need a date, pastor, right? We need some time together. So we're just going to leave little Jakey boy behind, make sure he's cared for, and, and we're going to go out to lunch. Maybe. I don't know. Um, but, but here's the thing. I would say it's safe to say that Mary and Joseph offered a good, safe home that was very intentional towards worshiping God, towards loving this young man. Uh, just a real quick word on parenting. I'm not an expert. I don't pretend to be one. I do the best I can. But the, we used to have this quote that was, you'd find it throughout our house. And, and I don't even know where it came from. I probably should have looked it up. I don't know where it came from. It's not from us, right? But it, it says, do not take too much credit for their good. And don't take too much credit for their bad. You know what I mean? Like, because you can see parents sometimes when their kids are just, they're just knocking it out of the park. They're just killing it. They're like, yeah, I'm pretty awesome. You know, I read Shepherding a Child's Heart. I read it in the original language, which was English. And you know what I mean? And I'm awesome. Well, maybe. Maybe your kids just got a bent towards being, you know, not pretty good. Not that he's basically good. He's sinful. But he's obedient. She's obedient. And, and God's given you a lot of grace there. You could be a great parent, and, and they might really just have a tendency towards of disobeying and pushing you away. When you do bad, you got to recognize that, but you can't take too much credit. You could be doing everything right, and your kid could just be a little stubborn, and you've got to work towards discipline and all these different things at that age, okay? So I would say that they are definitely doing the best they can. How about this? How about this? Was Jesus a disobedient kid? Now, I, th I think that that's, that's foolish 
to think that. But not only that, but it's just, it's dead wrong. Um, do you know that there are some scholars who wrote that into their commentaries? They would, I mean, I'm not kidding you, like not just an obscure one, numerous ones. They would say, yeah, no, because at the age of 13 is when he becomes an adult, so he could have done that at the age of 12, and so he had to learn how to be obedient, and so he absolutely could have disobeyed his parents. I would say no. Uh, Here's how their thinking goes, though. I just want you to see their thinking and see the error. They would say, well, Jesus must have certainly known that this group was leaving, right? He knew the day. He knew the time. He knew where to meet, and he didn't want to go. He was brought and he chose otherwise. He knew the day and the departure, but he was so caught up in the excitement of the Passover celebration that he couldn't resist staying back, and so he disobeyed his parents' orders. Well, there's a lot of theological problems with that thought. This isn't like they were at Cedar Point, and he did know what time he was supposed to meet him at the ride, and he said, but I just need one more ride, and he runs in line. It's not that kind of thinking at all. That kind of reasoning is nonsensical. Worse yet, it doesn't line up with the Bible. Okay, ready? Here's where we get into the teaching piece, and we'll get right back to the text. Scripture interprets Scripture, and you're like, what's that mean? Well, Scripture's clear on its main teachings. And it's very important that you get this. Alistair Begg has a saying. He has a lot of sayings, but this one's really important. The main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things, right? Um, People don't need any secret knowledge or any special training to understand the Bible, to understand sin, to understand grace, to understand forgiveness, to understand the plan of God's salvation. You can learn the Bible, You can. You might need some discipleship, but what you don't need is some secret code book that deciphers the thing or some special insight so that you can sound like you know all the things and no one else knows the things. So instead of running to the Bible, they run to you, right? Like you're the Buddha of the Bible. That's not at all the case, right? So so what do I mean when I say scripture interprets scripture? Well, in short, what it means is that we engage in, ready for a word you might not be familiar with, hermeneutics. Say it with me. Yeah, so what's that mean? It's, it's just the art of interpretation. You can even say the science. It's art and science. Um, we interpret the Bible, right? Get this. We interpret the indirect by the direct, okay? Um, the cloudy through the clear. We take the things that are known in the Bible, and then we take the things that might be fuzzy, and we push them through the lens of the things that are absolutely clear, and we come away with what is teaching. For instance, um, the clear passages of Scripture speak of Jesus's sinless life. It's just all throughout the New Testament. It's all throughout the Bible. Well, we, we use those to interpret the difficult ones, Okay, Um, so here's a few key phrases that you might want to remember. Context is king. I'll explain a little bit of that. A text without a context is a pretext. Don't read a verse by itself, right? Why do these things matter? Because you'll see people that will take a verse out of the Bible and they will put it on like some little bulletin or a coffee mug and they'll make it say something it absolutely doesn't say. And I can give you examples of that. I'm not going to, but I want you to understand that that's the case. And I think that's what's happening here. If you think that Jesus willfully disobeyed his parents, you don't understand the Bible. You don't understand the Bible. And so we strive at For the City Church not only to teach the Bible well, but to teach you how to understand how you can understand the Bible well. And we have plans for that with classes and different things that will come up in time. But then now is not the time. But I do want you to understand, you should be in a service with your Bible open. 
You should be looking at the text as I'm preaching the text so that you can understand how to interpret text so that you can be equipped. So if you're like, well, I don't have a Bible, I'll give you a Bible. I'll give you a good Bible, or I'll show you how to get one on your phone. But I really want you guys to understand how to read, understand your Bible, right? Um, yes, come for preaching. Yes, come for teaching. But always look at the Bible when anyone's opening the Bible to teach it so that you might know God and not some other person's good or bad theology. You understand? All right, I, that was important for me to say just based on some conversations I had this week. That's zero point. We'll get to the first point in a moment. Um, another, just one, one quick thing. This is why we, we strive to teach through books of the Bible at this church. And there's many other good churches that do that. But this is why, is because if you'll follow along, you'll know the Gospel of Luke. You really will. Especially if you'll engage in the Gospel of Luke prior to us ever getting to a Sunday morning. So guess what? Guess where we're going to be next week. Ready? Drum roll. Chapter 3. Where are we going to start? Verse 1. How far are we going to go? Undecided. Probably verse 21. We're going to take a big chunk next week, okay? So what should you do this week? Read it, pray, think, ask questions, and come expecting to hear from God through his word, okay? And a side note, now, did, so answer the question, did Jesus disobey his parents? No. First point, Jesus was without sin. He never sinned. Listen, Jesus later asked his haters, and he had tons of haters, by the way, which just goes to show you can love people perfectly and still be hated. <laughs> you can always be super kind and still be hated. You can always say the right things and still be hated. Now, you could use that as a reason to cover up your ignorance and still be rude, and you're hated because you're rude, not because you're perfect. But Jesus was perfect. And they hated him. And so during one of these times, guess what he said? He said, which one of you convicts me of sin? You see that in John 8, 46. He also claimed, I always do the things that are pleasing to the Father. That's in John 8, 29. The writer of Hebrews described Jesus as having been tempted as we are, and yet, ready, without sin. Okay, we see that in Hebrews 4, 15. Again, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, Hebrews 7, 26. Peter, he boldly proclaimed his sinless life by saying, Jesus committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. John declared, and in Jesus there is no sin. Paul affirmed that Christ knew no sin in 2 Corinthians 5.21. So to say that Jesus disobeyed his parents contradicts the clear teachings of the Bible. The clear teachings of the Bible. It's just not even a question. And the fact that some scholars would put that in question shows that they are lost. He, he needed to be the spotless lamb of God, and thank God he was. Perfect, innocent, spotless lamb. Think about this. This family went to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast, right? And if you're familiar with what that is, it was a time of celebrating and remembering God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt. But it's also a reminder of when the angel of death was going to come and strike down the firstborn in Egypt. But he would pass by over the people of Israel who then would take the smear and smear the blood of the lamb over their doorpost. He would pass over. So they're going to, to Jerusalem to be reminded of the great moment when God delivered his people. Now last week, if you remember, we looked at Jesus being presented in the temple. Remember? You had Simeon holding him up, kind of like the Lion King. At least that's how I remember it. 
I don't know that that's true, right? But now, listen, there's going to come a time in, in, at the end of this gospel when Jesus will be presented once again. He will be lifted up once again, and the destroyer will not pass over him. As a matter of fact, the firstborn son will be crushed upon a cross as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. His death then will actually lead to a greater liberation of God's people fully, finally, and forever. So think about Jesus at the temple thinking about these things. He may, like, he understands there's a greater freedom coming. He understands there's a greater intimacy with God coming because of what he's about to do. And he's mixing it up with these guys. And I say these guys because it's the guys that he's talking to in that moment because that's the only people who could be in that section with scriptures open. And he's asking them questions. Now, I don't know that the Bible says this, okay? This is just me thinking, okay? Ready? I don't know. that This is not Scott said the Bible said. No, this is Scott just wandering. But I wonder at 12 years old if he's just getting to know the audience he's about to bring the word of God to. He's asking them questions. What, 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 how did we end up with so many different laws? I remember my father not talking about that, right? Like he's asking them questions. He's preparing for his ministry. I think you'll see why I think that, it's, yes, it is a little conjecture, but you'll see why I think that that might be true. One, okay, I'm going to finish this out. This first point, Jesus was without sin. How do we know that? He's God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. That's in John 1, 1, and verse 14. Everything about Jesus in the gospel shows how he could and was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Point two, Jesus is God's Son. God is his Father. You might be thinking, we know this. This is basic Christianity. Well, if you know this, praise God. But I want you to know how you know it, why you know it, and how it's in the book of Luke, right? So where is that in the text, you might be thinking? If you're thinking that, good question. Let's look. All right. So notice this. Notice when Jesus was in the temple cutting it up with the teachers, right? We see this wild scene at the center of verse 47, and all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. See that? Mary was, she's not amused, by the way. She gives a little rebuke. Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching you in great distress. I bet they were. And all this sets the stage for the very first words of Jesus in the book of Luke. Okay? Now look at this. What does he say? Why were you looking for me? That's, that's a strange statement. I mean, we all have reasons we might think. Yeah, well, it's a pretty good reason to understand mom and dad are looking for you. Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Okay, ready? Don't miss this. Mary had just said, your father. Who's she mean? Joseph. Joseph. And I, in verse 48, are looking for you. But Jesus responds, my father's house. I'm in my father's house. Where did you expect I would be? Now, here's the interesting thing about Jewish boys. At 12 years old, this is really, this is some neat stuff. I actually didn't understand this, quite honestly, until I read some guys with some pointy heads. Uh, at 12 years old, they're about to turn 13, which meant you're going to be a young man. And now they would have bar mitzvah, but they didn't have that then. Not like this. This was definitely different. It was a passing of the baton. And so Joseph would have spent a lot of time with Jesus at the age of 12. And there was going to come a time where at age of 13, you're a man, and now you're going to enter into the work of your father. Well, who's your father? Joseph. What's his work? Carpentry. And Jesus is like, that's not my work. 
Where'd you expect that to be? You told me at the age of this time, I've arrived. I'm going to be about my father's work. And here I am. (laughs) Jesus called the temple where he stood my father's house. And in doing so, what's he declaring? God's my father. And you might think, well, what's the big deal? That may not stand out to you because of the culture that we live in. We live in a world where everybody says we're all God's children. Not true. The Bible doesn't teach that. You must be adopted into the family of God. We're all born into the domain of darkness under God's wrath. And if you want to have a dad, your dad's Satan. That's what the Bible teaches. You need a new dad. And that dad sends Jesus to rescue you. And he delivers you from the domain of darkness. And he places you into the kingdom of his beloved son. You're then adopted into the family. John 1 12 says to all who did receive him who believed in his name he gave the right to become children of God gave the right to become become children of God you must become a child of God you don't start there that's not the case for Jesus Jesus is unique in the fact that he is always the son and his father has always been okay and so here he is and he says I'm in my father's house Now, this would have raised some serious eyebrows among the leaders. Why? How do I know that? Well, John 5 says this. I want you to listen to this account. I know this is a little heady. You guys, you're doing good. Stick with it, and we're going to land. Well, what do I do with this? We're going to land there. But don't don't go sleep. Pay attention to the, the train of thought here, okay? John 5, Jesus just healed a man who had been an invalid for 38 years. Okay, and that man he goes away and he gets in trouble with the Pharisees. And so, listen, it says John 5 15 through 18. You can listen as I read. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And you might be like, Well, what's the deal with that? Well, you keep paying attention. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Why? Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Okay, all right, we'll get to that. But Jesus answered him, My father is working until now, and I am working. This, listen, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, he broke the rules, right? But he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Why is that a problem? Because it would be blasphemy unless it's true. And it is true. And Jesus, the 12-year-old boy, is saying that right there in the temple, among these people, and they're astonished at what he's saying. And Mary's like, I'm trying to figure this thing out too, right? Um, you, you think, well, everybody talks about God as Father. Jews never did. In, in the Old Testament, there's no use of an individual saying God as my Father. There's only like a handful of times when God's mentioned as Father, and it's always over the people of Israel as a whole. And even that's like maybe 18 times. It's always God, right? Yahweh, right? Like it's never so intimate. So for Jesus, the 12-year-old boy, to be in the temple and say, I just had had to be in my house. I had to be in my dad's house. They're like, this kid's on something. What's happening here? And Mary's trying to figure this thing out too. Listen to, to what David Golding says. He says, my father's house, question mark, The learned doctors knew the Old Testament inside and out. In all the long biblical record, not even Moses who had built the tabernacle, not David who had longed for the build the temple, not Solomon who actually built it, no prophet, no king, no commoner, not even the most exalted of them had ever referred to the tabernacle or temple as my father's house. The child was conscious of a relationship with God that none had conceived of. 
let alone expressed before. And with that relationship, a compelling devotion, I had to be in my father's house. So why is this text in Luke? Why is it important here? Why is Jesus' first words important here? Because he's unashamedly saying, I'm God. <laughs> i never seen that before. Thank you for smart people and the Holy Spirit and working the text to see that Jesus was proclaiming from moment one, I'm God. He never shot away from it, by the way. So Jesus, as a 12-year-old boy, had come to this understanding that he's the son of God. He's Messiah. Now, he always knew that in his deity. But as a child, he's beginning to understand his call to what God has sent him to do. He's fully God, and now he's added perfect humanity, and he's learning. It's not a little point, by the way. 18 years later, which is where we're going to start next week, Jesus will begin his public ministry. He's very aware of the fact that he's God, and God is his father, and that would become a foundational truth of his absolute ministry. He will always be dependent, submissive to his Father in heaven. I've come to do my Father's work. So look at verse 52 of chapter 2 once again. And this is where we say, well, what do we do with that? Look at it again. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. This, by the way, that verse concludes the, the narrative of, of Jesus' birth, right? And growing up, Jesus is fully God, fully man, absolutely perfect, without sin, did not come into the world, ready, with a brain fully programmed. He grew in wisdom. That's what the text says. As he, he didn't come in as a divine droid, right? You just program him in, plug him in, and now he's got it all figured out. Does it shock you to think that Jesus, who came full of grace and truth, had to learn to grow in grace? It shocks me. It shocks me. I read that and I'm like, what? So, so if Jesus, listen, if Jesus fully man had to learn to grow in, see how it says favor? By the way, another word for favor is grace. If, if Jesus must grow in favor or grace with God and man, then do you think it might be a good conclusion to say as believers we might have to also? I would say, yeah. Yep. You guys aren't talking to me today. It's cool. Um, why is this important? I think sometimes people think once they get saved, they're just zapped and everything's figured out and you're now just going to understand it all. You have, to, you, have to, you have to, there has to be effort. There has to be, right? You're enabled. You're enabled. There's no effort towards salvation, but there is effort towards growing in wisdom. There is effort towards growing in Christ in a sense, right? Growing up, maturing, right? Second Peter 3.18 says, but, to gr but grow, he's talking to the church, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To grow in grace means to mature as a Christian. That's, that's really what it means. It's the simplest way to say it, okay? To grow in grace does not mean that you gain more grace from God. Doesn't mean that. Does not mean that. God's grace never increases. It's infinite, right? Um, it, it cannot be more, and it, and it can't be less. Why? Because it would go against the nature of God to do that, okay? So he gave Jesus in this moment so that whoever believes in him should be saved. Yes, we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone, and we, listen, we mature by grace alone, 
We, we are glorified by grace alone. Don't ever confuse that. It's God's grace that justifies us. It's God's grace that sanctifies us. It's God's grace that glorifies us. You want to see that in a text? Romans 8.30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. By the way, that's past tense. It's past tense. Okay, why does that matter? Well, the sanctification process of becoming more like Jesus is synonymous with growing in grace. Well, what's that mean? Growing in grace? We grow in grace as we humbly submit ourselves to God. You're going to see it. You're going to see it in the text, okay? So let's talk about how do we grow in grace. And I think you're going to see it in the text we looked at in Luke, right? I can tell some of you are a little bit like, whoa, what's going on? A promise will land a plane. It'll make sense to you. I, I really do. You're like, well, I feel a little turbulence. I'm hanging in there. Okay, good. Ready? How do we grow in grace? That's the question, okay? First point, sub point. We grow in grace as we humbly submit and obey God. What does that even mean? By the way, this is for the Christian. This is for the Christian. If you're not in Christ, the first step is just, it's receive. It's receive what? It's receive Christ. It's receive forgiveness of sins. But in that moment, when you receive pardoning, what you also receive is empowerment. You receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that's real power. That's power to know God through his word, but it's also power to walk and to be more like Christ in our everyday living. Does that happen overnight? No. No. Growth is slow. Some people, I think, I've seen it. I've seen it. It's, it's pretty rare. They come to faith in Jesus Christ, and all of a sudden, man, their lives are just transformed in an instant. But for most people, no. It's like one step forward, two steps back. Got to knock off some dust and keep on walking with other people as we pursue Christ sloppily. Okay, but God's committed to that. So the first thing we do is we humbly submit and we obey God. When we submit our lives to God, what we're saying is we're joining um, Isaiah and we're saying, here I am, Lord, send me. We're presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice. Living sacrifice, that's a good thing, right? Otherwise, this just became really strange. What we're saying is my life's not mine. It's yours. You're going to see Jesus say this over and over throughout the gospel. Anyone who wants to follow me must deny himself pick up his cross, and follow me. Then you're my disciples. So deny myself. I want to be king. You're not king. I'm king. Deny yourself. Pick up your cross. That means you die of yourself, right? You live for me. And now follow me. Okay, follow me. It's like, kind of like Simon says. Jesus says, love your enemies. Okay, I'll do that. Jesus says to forgive. Okay, I'm going to do that. I don't naturally want to do that. I know. Deny yourself, <laughs> right? This is, this is the pattern that Jesus is going to teach us. Now, don't confuse growing in grace and being in grace. I can see it already on a couple of you. You're starting to make this a works thing. It's not a works thing. Grace is given to you to grow to be more like Christ, okay? We don't become more like Christ than get God's love. You are loved. Therefore, that's what it means to grow in grace is understanding that, okay? This takes effort, though. Make no mistake about it. It takes effort. Does that word bother you? I know some people who that word, it bothers them when I say it takes effort to grow in grace. Oh, I don't like that. Too bad. The Bible teaches it. Grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Do you understand the difference? We receive grace, and now he empowers us to put forth effort. 
There's, there's the difference, right? But it does take effort. Um, this means daily as believers, we must daily make a choice to submit ourselves to this king. And trust that the Holy Spirit's at work in us. And he then will conform us into the image of Christ. You'll be more like Jesus. You'll be less like yourself. Now, he can do that through you or in spite of you. There are times where if you don't want to submit yourself and you don't want to bend your knees, your Heavenly Father is so kind to discipline you. Not punish you, but discipline you. To draw you near to Him. To show you, gosh, all you've got is me. Why wouldn't you want to submit to Him? That's a good question. God doesn't require us to submit to Him because He's a tyrant, by the way. But because He's a loving Father. And because he knows what's best for us. See, the blessings and the peace that come from humbly surrendering ourselves to God daily is a gift of grace that the world can't compare to. Because with with it comes peace. With it comes being more like Christ. That's a good thing, by the way. That's a very good thing. It's a hard thing at times, but it's a good thing. So we grow in grace as we understand who we are truly as God's children. That's the second point. Okay, so we submit ourselves fully the best we can by the way you're never fully submitted to god never there's parts of your heart that are just not conformed to christ and they won't be until jesus returns but we continually present ourselves and say god help me the song we just sung jesus you are better make my heart believe that's about surrender it's about surrender i'm saying no i think money power success sex you name it that's better god make my heart believe as I surrender to you, as I submit to you, help me. But, but here's the thing. How we grow in grace, this is the second subpoint. is that we understand who we truly are as children of God. Oh, is this important? Jesus understood that he was the son of God and that God was his father. That produced in him um, a submission to the father, perfect submission, not like our case, but, but you got to understand, those who are in Christ are in, in Christ. That's a union with Christ. You are in him in his death. You're in him in his resurrection. And guess what that means? You're now beloved children. 1 John 3.12 says, Beloved, we are God's children now. So here's the deal. When you see your father as magnificent as he truly is, guess what you want to be like? You want to be like him. Think back to when you were a teen. You probably had some, they used to call them teenage idols. All right? I'd like watch Bo Jackson run, and I wanted to be Bo Jackson. Right? Do you, do you even know who Bo Jackson is? But here I am. I'm this just chubby kid. I'm never going to be Bo Jackson. Right? Like, just do it. I just tried, and I just couldn't. But it never stopped me from putting, like, posters on the wall and wanting to be like him. Why? Because I admired him. I admired him. I wanted to be like him. I even wore clothes like him. How embarrassing was that for my parents, right? Like, same thing happens for Christians, though. The more we, it's always a sight problem. The more we see God as infinitely beautiful as he truly is, guess who you want to be more like? You want to be like your father. You want to be like your father. So so do you see that that's grace? God opening your eyes to see and to to behold his beauty that's kindness from God where do we do that we go to the word of God but you can read the word of God and they're just words on paper until God just says let let me show you how beautiful I am and when he does that you behold him and as you behold him if you see him rightly you'll want to be more like him 
You want to be more like him, and he'll give you the grace to do that. The awareness of being a child of God makes us want to obey. It empowers us by God's grace to submit to him. So let me ask you this. Do you know who you really are? I'm speaking primarily to Christians, to Christians, to those who are in Christ. Do you know who you are? Do you know whose you are? This is so profoundly important. Like, you have lots of different little identities, right? You might be a father, you might be a mother, you might be a husband, you might be a wife, you might be single, you might be a single man, a single woman, you might be a worker, you might be all these different things, but that's not the core of who you are. The core of who you are in Christ is beloved child of God. That's who you are. Primarily, at the core, at the center of who you are is your beloved. You're bought. You're washed clean. You're justified. You're in his grip. And you're adored. You're adored. Your heavenly father sees you. He loves you. He delights in you. And when you understand that, guess what you'll want to do? You'll want to follow him. Why? Because he would never lead me anywhere bad. He's done everything to bring me to what is good. What is good? Him. He's made a way for you to come into the family to enjoy all the benefits that Christ has purchased for you. And this 12-year-old boy in the temple is saying, where else would I be? I had to be with my father. Well, that's the heart of every Christian at the truest cry. And when it's not, God help me to see there's no better place to be than right in your presence and enjoying you in communion with you. Okay. Yes. Last point. Last point. We grow in grace as we worship God individually and collectively. I think you can see that in the text. They were ascending to Jerusalem. They were going to the Temple Mount. They were worshiping God together. God calls us to worship Him. Worship's communion with God. With, and we do this primarily, collectively on Sunday with one another. This, this matters so deeply, by the way, because life was never meant to be lived in isolation. It was not. In denial, right? And, and, and even stewing in pain and starving for grace, you need one another. Oh, the world thinks, no, I'm just going to go and get in the woods and I'm going to worship Jesus. By the way, you can worship Jesus by yourself in the woods, and you should. But you can't do that. You, you can't do the one another's. And I'll tell you right now, we need one another. I'll tell you one of the most amazing things that happens every Sunday morning when I gather here is I hear you sing. And if you don't sing, let me encourage you to sing. When I hear the church sing out like that, man, it's just a reminder, God, you are so worthy of our praise. And there's something beautiful that happens in that moment. But also, just like you and I, we need encouraged. We need encouraged to turn from sin, to turn towards God. We need encouraged to not quit. We need one another. And guess what? We have been given means of grace to just give out grace to one another. To give out grace to one another. This is how you grow. You need people around you who are further down the road to say, you're going to be just fine. Just keep on following Jesus. Come on, I'll help you. Right? You, you, you need people who are new at the beginning of the stage who, man, they are so excited about Jesus. Has my love grown a little cold? Because when I see them, man, they get it. We need each other. And that's how God's designed it. That's how God's designed it. So these three things really matter if you want to grow in grace. We humbly come to God and we submit ourselves and we say, help. 
We say help, right? We, 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 we link arms with one another and we worship collectively. And not just on Sunday morning, by the way. Not just on Sunday morning. If that's where you're at, that's fine. If that's where you're at, don't stay there. Because I'm telling you right now, it's so important that you be a part of a community outside of Sunday morning. That you'd be known and that you would know. It's very important for you if you want to grow in God's grace to be more like Christ. And then we grow as we worship God individually and collectively. So listen, to grow in Christ, we don't set out to grow. You don't wake up every morning like, oh, I hope to grow some fruit today. That would be weird. Growth isn't the goal. It's really not. We set out to taste and see that the Lord is good. You set out to see his beauty. You set out to adore. This is what it means to grow. Because as you see and as you taste and see that the Lord is good, guess what will happen? You adore him. And guess what happens when you adore him? You'll become what you behold. Don't make Christianity confusing. And if you're like, well, this text and sermon was a little confusing at the beginning. That's okay. Come into a missional community and let's talk about it and talk about what it means to read the Bible so that it won't be confusing, so that you can understand, so that by God's grace, you'll grow. So what's the point? It takes grace to grow in grace. And, and guess what? If you're in Christ, you worship the God of all grace. How do you know that? Because he sent his son to die for sinners like us. To take upon our sin who had never sinned. To go to a cross willfully and joyfully, by the way. Don't ever make Jesus a victim. Jesus willingly went to the cross for the joy that was set before him because it delighted him to obey his father. Because he trusted his father. Plus, he also knew the treasure that would come. And what's the treasure? Well, it's glory for his father, but it's also, I'm going to give you the gift of people to worship you, to love you. So what's that mean? Don't push this too far or you'd be way out of whack with the Bible. That means, really, all believers are a treasured possession of God to Christ, given as a gift. And you can see that throughout the Gospels. And so he gives them, and he says, now go, lay down your life for them. And Jesus says, I would love to do that, Father. Why? Because you're amazing, and I trust you. Is that our posture? If you see Christ clearly, it will be, most frequently. And when it's not, and there's times it's not, if we could be real, guess what he gives you? Grace. Grace. So what's the way forward? Repentance and faith. When I line up, thank you, Lord. When I don't, God, change my heart. Draw me back to you. And guess what? Because he's a good father, he never lets you go. He never lets you go. He's committed to you growing more than you are. And if you go back to Romans 8, guess what? It's already finished. It's already done. You're just trusting in the work that God will do in you if you're in Christ. He will bring it to completion at the day of Christ's return. Until then... Let's just lock arms, seek to love the Lord, seek to love one another. And trust me, if that happens, this church will grow. And how will you know it? Because you'll be an intellectual giant? No, because you'll love God and you'll love one another. And that love, guess where it will pour out? To the city and the people around you. 
There's so many more things that could be said, but that's enough. We never outgrow our need for God's grace. And guess what? Because he's the God of all grace, he never runs out. You can trust him. Thanks for listening to this sermon. If you found it helpful, we encourage you to enjoy more of our sermons, find out more information about For the City, or how to partner with us through prayer and giving at www.forthecity.church. For the City exists to magnify Jesus by making disciples who share and show the transforming power of the gospel and plant churches that multiply.